read through verse 18. Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. And then I'm going to read through verse 18 and invite you to follow in whichever version of the Bible you might have with you this morning silently. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. It's the rare individual who is able to turn his or her handicap into an asset. But the world's greats have been masters at it. The Italian conductor Arturo Toscanini was such a man. You see, Toscanini was born with severe nearsightedness. And it really was something which ultimately led to the opening of the door of his really being successful. You might say, how can someone who was born with nearsightedness and a musician end up being a person of influence? Well, let me try to answer that question. When Toscanini was 19, he was a cellist in an orchestra in his native Italy. He was so nearsighted, he could not read the music on the music stand, so the result was he had to memorize everything which he played in the symphony. One day arrived when the conductor of the orchestra grew ill, and he was the only one who knew the music by heart. Therefore, Toscanini, being the only one who knew the score, was the one who led this orchestra in their performance. The crowd was overwhelmed with joy with the performance and also with Toscanini. So much so that Toscanini never returned to playing the cello. He became the maestro of the orchestra. One would wonder what would have happened if Toscanini had not been born nearsighted. Perhaps he would have labored in relative obscurity in any number of European orchestras playing the cello. But rather he became known and still remains known as one of the greatest conductors of music in the world's history. He parlayed his handicap into a vehicle for personal greatness. Have you ever stopped to think that all of us have at least one handicap? All of us. None of us is perfect. What we do with our handicaps determines the fruitfulness and usefulness of our lives in the kingdom of God. We can mope around lamenting our lack of ability or opportunity, or we can be like Toscanini and the Apostle Paul who saw their handicaps as bridges. In the case of the Apostle Paul, he saw his handicap as a bridge for transporting the gospel to a dying world. Now let me interrupt myself and note that the Apostle's handicaps were enormous. By his own admission, he was neither appealing to look at or to listen to. 
He had some disfiguring disease, probably an eye disorder that made him hard to look at. And when he asked Jesus to remove that from him, Jesus said, No, in order to keep you in a position of humility, Paul, I'm going to let you keep this handicap. God knew that without some kind of restriction on his ego, Paul would rise above and draw attention to himself and seek glory for himself rather than seeking glory for God. Paul turned his handicap into a vehicle for enlarging the kingdom of God. And guess what? You and I can do the same. Look at verse 12 again in this passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The word translated advance is a word which was used to describe pioneers who went before an army that was on the march, and they cleared thick underbrush out of the way so that the army would not be impeded in its progress as it was marching to victory. Have you ever stopped to think that the church of Jesus Christ is like an army? And when we respond properly to the handicaps in our lives, it's as if we're like pioneers clearing the way for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing to consider. I think it's worth noting also that the Apostle Paul does not say, cry for me. In effect, he says, don't cry for me. Rejoice, because I'm in Rome. This is where I wanted to end up all along, and now because of the handicap in my life, I find myself exactly where I desired to be. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, as he was describing his imprisonment there, He probably, as he was dictating this to his secretary who was writing it, he probably would have raised his hands and saw each arm shackled with chains. And he says, I am chained like a common criminal, he perhaps would have said. And we know he reported this to Timothy, his son in the faith. But then he says something that is so powerful. He says, but the Word of God is not chained. It does not matter what my circumstances are. This is what Paul was saying. God's Word is not able to be contained or chained or detained by anyone. Now, what does the relationship between your <clears throat> handicap and the, what is rather the relationship between your handicap and the accomplishment of the spread of the gospel in the world? Well, there are three things which emerge from this passage of Scripture. The first is this. Your handicap can gain the gospel a hearing among those who otherwise would never have heard the gospel. Paul's did. Look at verse 13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, to what group of people was Paul referring when he uses this phrase, the whole palace guard? There were 10,000 men who were handpicked by Caesar to be his personal imperial bodyguard. These men were soldiers of the first order. They would be roughly equivalent to the Green Berets in our army, special forces, as it were. They received double the pay of any other Roman soldier. And they had an incredibly good retirement program when they retired. These young men were not long with the Apostle Paul without hearing about Jesus as they guarded him. Every conversation that anyone would engage in with the Apostle Paul led to the person of Jesus Christ. As the guards would change, Paul would let the gospel of Christ weave its web of grace in the hearts and minds of these choice young soldiers. He would tell them that he was in chains for Jesus Christ. 
when they would go off duty, they would exchange notes with other soldiers in the Imperial Guard. And they would say that they had experienced the most remarkable man they had ever met in the person of Paul. Because here was a man who was a prisoner, yet he did not let his misfortunes dim his hope. Rather, he was preaching, he was praying, and lo and behold, he was writing letters of encouragement to other people. He was the one who would seemingly be in need of encouragement, but here he was dispensing encouragement. As he shared the gospel and as he wrote the epistles, we commonly call the prison epistles. Never had they met a man like Paul. Never. As they would compare what they heard from his mouth, they must have had an experience similar to the two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus as they talked about what they had experienced when Jesus had opened the Scriptures to them and they said that their hearts burned within them. As they heard the message of the Gospel, these men's lives were radically renovated. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. We make a mistake when we come to the end of a book in the Bible, particularly the epistles, because Paul, generally speaking, gives words that are of a personal nature. He greets individuals or he sends greetings to the church to whom he's writing or to the individual that he's writing to from individuals. Let's look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 4. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. This is the royal court. How did the gospel make its way into Caesar's household? It was because Paul was in chains for Christ. Members of the imperial bodyguard came to sit with the apostle because that's the only kind of individual who would guard someone who was an imperial prisoner, as Paul was. Remember in the book of Acts, he appealed to Caesar based on his citizenship as a Roman citizen. And the result was the gospel had gotten into the royal courtyard. Now understand... Paul, as far as we know, did not go himself to the palace. At least by this time he had not gone. But those soldiers were making their way in and out of the court of Caesar every day. Amazing. Paul would never have exercised influence over Caesar's household apart from his chains. Now, I don't know what your handicap is today. But whatever it is it quite likely will put you in touch with people who need to know Jesus. And more than likely, it will put you in touch with influential people eventually who need to know Jesus Christ. People who can touch others with the gospel. And not only, as we turn now back to chapter 1, verse 13, have the gospel become clear to the whole palace guard, but to everyone else. Now, how did that happen? Is that an exaggeration? On the part of the Apostle Paul, it's rather preposterous, actually, to think that the gospel had become known to everyone else in Rome because Rome was a mega city. It was a metropolis of the first order. But turn to Acts chapter 28, and let's listen to the last words that Luke the doctor penned about the Apostle Paul, the concluding words of the Acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house. He was under house arrest, but he was chained nevertheless, and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God, 
and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. What was happening? He was having the opportunity. He couldn't get out of that house to preach the gospel as was his custom. We know from Acts 20.20, he preached the gospel publicly and from house to house. I can in my mind's eye see the Apostle Paul when he was not in chains going door to door to door preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to one person at a time. But now he could not go anywhere. But what was happening? God was bringing people to him. And the result was God was giving favor and men and women were being saved and they in turn would go out and they would dispense the gospel all over Rome so that everyone knew why the Apostle Paul was in chains. He was in chains, why? Because Jesus had placed him in that situation. Now the truth is that most of us who know Christ do not suffer with positive influence. We tend to suffer with selfish interest. Why did Paul's handicap of being in prison open the door for the gospel? Paul didn't use his suffering as an occasion for self-pity or for gaining sympathy from others. He didn't obscure it, though. He didn't hide it as if it didn't exist. He told about it. But he had every reason to chafe. He had every reason to feel sorry for himself. He had every reason to try to get people to sympathize with him. Remember what his life had been like up until this point. He was a globetrotter. If he had had a passport, he would have had stamps from Asia Minor, from Greece, from Crete, and Malta, and on and on and on. He was a man who was accustomed to going as the Spirit led him to be free. Never were chains so restrictive from the human perspective than when they were shackled on the arms of the Apostle Paul. But he did not let that keep him from doing what God called him to do. Paul witnessed of Christ rather than complain. Look at Philippians 2.14 for a moment. Notice what the Apostle Paul commands under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Philippians and in turn Through the corridors of time, this echoes and it's a command to us as well. Do everything without complaining. He was not a whiner, was he? He was not a complainer. He did not complain. He did not see his suffering as an act of divine forgetfulness. He did not say, why did God let this happen to me? Nor did he see his suffering as a dismissal from the service of the Lord. He might have said, I was looking forward to years of usefulness in my senior years, but now look at me. He didn't say that. Nor did he say, look at what's happened here. It's Satan's work. I'm afraid the devil has had his way this time. I can never imagine Paul saying anything like that. Can you? He rather saw himself as one under orders. Notice what he says. Look at verse 16. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The word which is translated the defense of the gospel is a military term which suggests one's being on duty. In the book of Ephesians, the sixth chapter, in the closing part of Ephesians chapter 6, this is how Paul describes himself. I am an ambassador in chains. He was an ambassador. He did not see himself as some low-life prisoner waiting to be tried by Caesar. Rather, he saw himself as God saw him. He was an ambassador. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Of all of us, we are ambassadors for Christ. And it does not matter what our handicap may be. God wants to use us in spite of, or maybe in some cases because of, because He knows 
that our handicap may be the key that unlocks the door to gospel witness to people who otherwise would not hear it. Think about your own life. Think about your handicap. What is it? Maybe you have multiple handicaps. What are they? God can use those to open the door for witness. Now, here's the second thing which surfaces from this passage. A cheerful attitude towards your handicap will encourage others to boldly proclaim Christ. Paul's did. Look again at this passage of Scripture, verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Now, it's worth noting that the Apostle Paul does not say here, most of the prophets in the Lord, most of the apostles in the Lord, most of the evangelists in the Lord. He does not say most of the pastors and most of the teachers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. What does he say? Most of the brothers... Brothers and sisters, people who know Christ. So whose responsibility is it, by the way, to proclaim the gospel? Is it just the apostles' responsibility? Or is it just the pastor's responsibility? Whose responsibility is it? It's our responsibility. And it's more than a responsibility, by the way. It's an incredible privilege. Paul's obsession with the gospel of Jesus Christ was contagious. It infected the brothers. If it had not been for Paul's chains, these brothers who were encouraged to preach the Word of God more courageously and more fearlessly would probably have left the preaching to Paul. Paul might have done something like he did in Ephesus where he rented the hall of Tyrannus in the afternoons, five or six days a week. He would teach for hour after hour. And they would have loved it and they would have been edified by it. But God had a better plan. I must not let any handicap I may perceive myself to have I must not let it keep me from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I'm cheerful, as the Apostle Paul was, and once again, let me refer you to the passage that we're considering. Look at the last part of verse 18. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. The Apostle Paul was full of joy. I rejoice, he says. And then later he commands the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. What enabled the Apostle Paul to live in a state of joy and rejoicing? It's because he knew no matter what his circumstances, Jesus was near. Jesus was with him. Jesus was in him by the Spirit. And the result was, he was filled with the Spirit of Christ. And one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. He overflowed with joy. He had cheerfulness. And his cheerfulness had an impact on those around him. My, I suggest that you and I can have the same kind of impact if we're filled with the joy of the Lord. How could Paul be so cheerful? Well, it's because Paul knew that God was his travel agent. God made his reservations. We would have expected perhaps God, if Paul had been traveling to El Paso, to reserve a suite or maybe the penthouse at the Camino Real instead of the county jail. Paul says in verse 16, look again, the latter do so in love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Who put Paul there? Well, Caesar put him there. But who really put him there? God... Put him there. He had a purpose for Paul's life that would not have been fulfilled had he not ended up in prison in Rome. Now, I'm going to make a statement that if you can grasp it, and I can grasp it, 
will be worth the time that we spend together during this time of teaching. It will be completely worth it. It's a very simple statement. I'm going to read it and then repeat it. Paul had discovered that things happened to him so that things could happen through him. I want to read that again. Paul had discovered that things happened to him so that things could happen through him. He knew that he had a loving God, a sovereign God. He saw his chains as God sent chains full of purpose. If we were to adopt this attitude, this perspective, we would be able to rejoice in the Lord always too. We would have a cheerful disposition that would impact others positively for the kingdom of God. Do you view your handicap or handicaps in this way? Do you? The wife of the great British preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, Mrs. Campbell Morgan, had a saying. She was fond of speaking to her children as they were growing up and even when they became adults. Whenever they would have discouragement in their lives, this is a little motto that she would say to them. Disappointment is his appointment. If you and I are cheerful, others will be encouraged to preach the Word of God more courageously and boldly. Several years ago, a young girl, five years of age, her name is Jill Scherler, stood before the youth department, about 50 middle school and senior high students, 50 of these students, the First Baptist Church of Walters, Oklahoma. And this little girl wowed the crowd that day. She began by talking about what happened on the seven days of creation She continued by talking about the members of the first family. She reeled off the names of Jacob's twelve sons. Then she told who the twelve apostles were. She quoted the books of the Bible in sequence from Genesis to Revelation. She quoted the 23rd Psalm. She quoted the Beatitudes. And then she sang the Lord's Prayer. Now that would have been very, very touching probably to us to hear a five-year-old do that. But you know, there are lots of five-year-olds who could do that. Lots. The thing that made her audience so encouraged and so charged up about their ability to be used by God is that one year earlier, when she was four years old, the right side of her brain was totally removed because she had a degenerative brain disease. She only had half a brain. Now, I'm not going to ask how many here today have half a brain. I think all of us have a whole one. And so science, scientists tell us we don't begin to use anywhere near the capacity of what God's given us. But God encouraged those youth in Walters, Oklahoma, the First Baptist Church, that they could be used by God. If this little girl could be, certainly they could be. Well, here's the third truth which surfaces from this text. Your handicap may inspire your rivals to preach the gospel. As I mentioned in the earlier worship service today, one of the sad commentaries on us as 21st century American Christians is that many, of, if not most of us, don't have any rivals because of our identification with Christ. Remember what Jesus says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. There's no compliment that comes when it's said of you or me, Well, everybody likes him. Everybody likes her. There's something wrong with my Christianity, if that's something I aspire to or that's something that actually is said about me. Look at what Paul says about these people who were his rivals. 
verse 17. He said, The former, that is those who preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So he had rivals, didn't he? The question would be, what created the rivalry? Now let me pause here and make something abundantly clear. I hope I can do this. There should be zero tolerance for any gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul proclaims it. Because in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, remember what this same apostle said to the Galatian church. He said, if we, meaning Paul and his companions, his apostolic band, if we come to you, or an angel from heaven were to come to you, or any human being other than us were to come to you and preach any other gospel other than the gospel which you received from us when we first preached the gospel, let that person or persons be cursed. There's only one gospel, my friend. And Paul is very explicit, very plain in describing what it is. It's a very simple gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and He was raised from the dead. For by grace you have been saved through faith in this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one shall boast or can boast. The only gospel that is acceptable to God is the gospel of Jesus Christ, as plainly spelled out in the New Testament. So Paul, when he was talking about these rivals, obviously they were preaching the genuine gospel. But they were preaching it out of a poor motive. A very poor motive. What created the rivalry? Well, I think jealousy created it. It usually does. There is a theory, and I adhere to this theory, which says that the rivals in this particular case in Philippi, in Rome rather, were the leaders in Rome. They were the church leaders. Paul was leading more people to Jesus in the guardhouse than they were in the church house. Now, I'll tell you what the test, and this is a test that you can apply to me. It probably won't apply to too many others present today, but it would apply to me. A real test comes when somebody comes and reports to me, Mike, did you hear how God is moving mightily in Mount Franklin Baptist Church or Western Hills United Methodist Church or in... Sun City Calvary Chapel or in First Baptist Church. Mike, have you heard how God is moving in this church, that church, or the other church? That's a test of what my heart really wants and whether I'm really mature. Am I a kingdom person or am I trying to build my little kingdom? Are we trying to build a name for Coronado Baptist Church or are we trying to advance the name of Jesus Christ? Please understand that the body of Christ is much broader than what we experience. And I love this church. Please understand, I love this church. But we're part of something much greater than this little band of people. Thank God we're part of something greater. We're part of His kingdom. And He wants us to rejoice when He works wherever He works. These people are rather fervent in their opposition and rivalry. They supposed that they could stir up trouble for Him. And I'm sure it hurt. He was human, after all. It hurt Him. But how did Paul handle this rivalry? At the sake of sounding redundant, he handled it joyfully. Notice what he says in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Christ is preached, Paul says, 
Have you ever noticed that Paul's passion was that Jesus Christ be preached? He said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It was like fire in his bones. He was somewhat like the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. He had to preach the gospel. He was not ashamed of Jesus and his words because he knew that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. These preachers did not dot every I and cross every T like Paul did, but they were preaching the gospel of Christ. And people were being drawn to Christ. The gospel can be preached by those who have differences with us theologically. Not on the basics, but on those things which are disputable. Those people can preach the gospel and Christ will, be used, will use those people to draw people to himself. And here's an amazing thought. It was true in the church at Rome. And it always has been true. God even uses carnal, self-centered preachers to save people, if those preachers preach Christ. He does. Rivalry really does not fit in the church of Jesus Christ. It besmirches the name of Jesus. Rivalry soon subsides when there's only one combatant. Remember what Paul writes about a spirit-filled person or a spirit-filled church in Ephesians chapter 5? He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if you're at loggerheads with another brother in Christ or sister in Christ, and you're in rivalry with each other, you know how to end the rivalry real fast? Just submit to her. Just submit to him out of reverence for Christ. And the dispute is settled. It's over. There's no more ability to fight and fuss and fume. One of the greatest missionary statements in the history of the church, modern church especially, statesman, was the Methodist missionary E. Stanley Jones. He invested the vast majority of his life preaching the gospel in his beloved India. At the age of 87, imagine this now, at the age of 87 he was on a preaching tour to the college students of Japan and he was seeing many Japanese college students come to faith in Jesus Christ. Tremendous outpouring of the Spirit. Right in the middle of this incredible demonstration of God's power, he suffered a stroke at the age of 87. The stroke was incredibly debilitating. He could not walk. He could not speak. His attending physician said, you will never be able to speak again. Never be able to speak again. Maybe walk, but never speak. Well, he was a man who had never taken never as a final in his life. Because he was a man of incredible faith, God had blessed him with great faith as he was faithful to the Lord. This is what he did. He began to respond to the therapy that he was given to walk. And then he struck upon his own idea about how to gain his speech again. He asked for a tape recorder. He wrote it down and asked for a tape recorder. And then he would speak into the tape recorder. And when he would speak into the tape recorder, only he could understand what he was trying to say. But it enabled him to see where his speech was slurred and it was wrong. And then he would go back and he would say the same thing again. And he worked and he worked and he worked until, you guessed it, he regained his ability to communicate as clearly as he had before. And he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ again before he died. Isn't that an amazing story? 
basically what the doctors had said, and I'm going to call on Seth in just a minute because Seth Edwards, I didn't know you were going to be here today, but Seth Edwards was his secretary, as it were. He helped him write the book, The Divine Yes, which is this story. Dr. Jones dictated it to Seth Edwards. Seth stands so I can... People... To Seth Edwards, he dictated this book. Am I right about that, Seth? As he dictated this book, and it's a great book, by the way, get it and read it, The Divine Yes, what his doctors had in essence said to him is, Oh man, curl up in your bed and die. Just curl up in your bed and die. You're never going to walk again, much less talk again. But he would not allow his handicap or other people's perception of his handicap keep him from continuing to do what God had created him to do. I wonder if there's anybody present today who's ready to just sort of crawl up in your bed and die. Just to pack it in, to hang it up, to forget it. Well, please don't. Because God can use the very thing that is prompting you to call it a day. To call it quits. He's using that very thing. He can use that very handicap in your life to bring the gospel to unsuspecting people. May God give us the ability to see that He wants to use our handicaps to spread the gospel to the end of the world, to the end of the age.